Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 3 this morning. Luke chapter 3, not what it says in your bulletins. Luke 3, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read to verse 20. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came to, into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that, From these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, And all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at this passage and think through what this means, what it teaches us of you, what it means for us and teaches us about our own hearts. 
I pray that you, your spirit would be working in us. Father, we pray that every one of our thoughts and meditations would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Well, this past week, the Presbyterian Church in America met in Dallas for their general assembly. Um, the PCA and the Presbyterian Church in America is the denomination that we just left some months ago. And it, it's become clear that all the reasons we left have only um, become stronger and better reasons to have left that denomination. One of the main topics that was addressed at this year's General Assembly was, as they're calling it, human sexuality by which they mean homosexuality and homosexual desire. And the Bible teaches us on these topics. We, we can't be mealy-mouthed about it. We can't be embarrassed. Through, through thousands of years of church history, the church has had a doctrine of sexuality. What is appropriate um, between male and female, right? And so if you want to know God's thoughts on human sexuality... Try reading his word before you just make things up. Or try reading his word before you go to the New York Times. Or try reading his word before you go to uh, the notes that you took in a human sexuality course at uh, the, the University of South Carolina. You know, those will not be helpful. Nor will they be inerrant and infallible as God's word will be. And so, at one point during the assembly, the PCA's General Assembly, Greg Johnson... And Greg Johnson is the pastor who recently came out as a gay Christian on the pages of Christianity Today, and whose church hosted the, the 2018 Revoice Conference. He, he came out in, in the General Assembly and took the mic, and they were debating whether or not to pass some affirmations and denials on, on human sexuality. Human sexuality, I want to say. Um, and he got, he got to the mic and it gave a very, very emotional speech. Right? He lamented that he would not have a spouse. He lamented that he would not have someone with which to be sexually intimate. That he would not have children to carry on his name and legacy. And, you know, you begin to start feeling his pain when, when he's expressing these things. But what he was doing in that speech was trying to vic- be a victim, victim shame, the whole assembly of Presbyterians. And of course, the assembly responded to his emotional manipulation with what? With applause. With applause. A friend of mine said this in response to that speech. He said, the sad part is that he boasts in it in his sinful um, desires. He boasts in it instead of acknowledging that his refusal to reject the gay identity has robbed him of the glory and honor of a Christian marriage and godly seed. It's robbed him of the glory of the things that God has given to us in this world, which is marriage and godly seed, a godly heritage, children, right? Well, 
later in the assembly, late at night, on I think the same day, it may have been the next day, but later in the night, a man got up to defend an overture that came up from his his presbytery, which was a separate set of affirmations and denials about human sexuality. And, um, and they were better, and they were good. And he got up that night because the, the overtures committee had said, no, we don't want those. They wanted to deny those affirmations and denials. And he got, got up and defended a, a minority report. And, and he got up and he started... He started reading scripture. He started talking about pastoral ministry and pastoral ministry to uh, those tempted by sexual sins. And he was shut down in the middle of his speech. Or attempted, it was attempted to shut him down after he read from Romans 1 um, that he was using intemperate speech. He was quoting scripture. He was speaking pastorally. He was talking of homosexuality as just a sin, like a, a run-of-the-mill sin like the church has always said through 2,000 years of history. He was shut. They attempted to shut him down. The moderator let him speak. Good for the moderator. The next day, there were a group of pastors in the PCA who got up and rebuked and for, formed a an official protest against the moderator for having not shut that guy down. So now the moderator, who did an excellent job, gets in trouble for having not shut down that intemperate speech from the day before. That's the PCA. Right? That is what is happening there. And thoroughly thankful that you, as a congregation, decided to leave that behind. The faithful in that denomination are going to become weary in the coming years because they're going to be fighting battles that don't and shouldn't need to be fought. And it will wear down the faithful. But I wanted to look at this passage because it so struck me that 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 pastor who got up later in the night and and was interrupted and, and was reading scripture and his demeanor, he was, he was a humble guy. He, he was not a brash sort of guy. He just spoke. And um, not very impressive, you know, kind of like what Scripture says about the Apostle Paul. And, but he made me think of, of John the Baptist as one crying in the wilderness because he got up and it's like he was in the wilderness. Everybody in that assembly, not everybody, but most people in that assembly opposed Scripture's teaching. And I thought, what a sad day when somebody who is boringly normal in the history of Christianity is like John the Baptist, right? A voice crying in the wilderness. Uh, somebody calling for repentance. Um, if, if, the, if the PCA ever reforms, voices like him will just be boring. I mean, people will sleep through his speeches at General Assembly like they sleep through all the permanent committee reports, right? That people will sleep through it because it'll just be standard biblical teaching. But it stood out for its boldness because of the context of the effeminacy of Greg Johnson and his emotional appeals and scripture up against it. But, and so this Stephen Warhurst, 
was his name. He's an associate pastor up at a church in Tennessee. So if you're ever going through, I can't remember the city it's in, but it's probably eastern Tennessee, not western. The west, more west you get in Tennessee, the more liberal it becomes, right, until you end up in Memphis. Um, so uh, look up his church and try to encourage him if you're looking for churches in western or uh, eastern Tennessee. Um, Stephen Moorehurst really appreciated what he did. And um, anyway, he reminded me of this passage and the, the mix-up today about what comprises the gospel. Right? We get confused about what the gospel is. The gospel today is solely the message of grace. That's what the gospel is today. But the gospel is more expansive. The good news has more about it, in orbit about it, than just that uh, the message of grace. So in this chapter, we're introduced to the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who would come before Jesus in the, power and, in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist, or, you know, I think it's better to call him John the, the, I don't know, John the prophet, John the preacher, although I hate that, John the pastor, John the confronter, John the thorn in the flesh of Herod. Chapter 2 gives us a glimpse of Jesus as a young man at the age of 12, and then we jump to about 17 years forward um, ahead into chapter 3 and Jesus is now about 30 years old and John is about to get the ball rolling he's about to fulfill that prophecy as the one who's crying out in the wilderness Luke begins chapter 3 with a description of the rulers of the region right at this time Palestine the kingdom of um, Palestine was the kingdom of Herod the great and it was divided into four parts it was a tetrarchy tetrarchy um, Judea was under the direct administration of Rome. Galilee and Ituria were ruled by two of Herod's sons, Herod Antipas and Philip, and Abilene was governed by Lysanias. Or Lysanias. Um, we don't know much about Lysanias. We know quite a bit about Herod Antipas because he ruled for 43 years in Galilee, the region where most of the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus took place. Like his father, he was wicked. Um, a commentator, Adersheim, describes him as covetous, avaricious, luxurious, and utterly dissipated and suspicious, and with a good deal of that fox cunning, which especially in the East often forms the sum total of statecraft. So he was a, he was a, uh, he was a schemer, all right? We also know, looking ahead to verses 18 through 20, that Herod Antipas, Herod, I said Herald, Herod Antipas, was committing incest, right? Herodias had already married her half-uncle Herod Philip. Then when she became infatuated with Herod Antipas, another half-uncle, she divorced Herod Philip and married Herod Antipas. Things are going to get complicated in the family tree really quick, right? We also learn in verse 2 that there were high, two high priests, though the law required only one. Again, Adersheim says the chief religious office was divided between two equally unworthy of its functions. 
There was likely some political reason for such a bifurcation of this office. And indeed, it seems only Caiaphas held the title and Annas had equal power without the title. So Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. So into this complicated political situation, this oppressive and dangerous situation, comes John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah. As it says in verse 2, the word of God came to John in the wilderness. John has some preaching to do. For about a year, John and Jesus would be ministering concurrently. So they're both ministering around this area, about a year of overlap. Then John is put into prison and later is executed at the, the request of a vicious little girl, Salome, the daughter of Herodias and her other half-uncle, Herod Philip. Now remember, we've already met John in Luke's gospel. He's mentioned in chapters 1 or chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, and verses 39 to 80, all of those have to do with John the Baptist and his parents, Elizabeth and Zacharias. The angel of the Lord told John's parents this, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He will turn them back. Notice that statement. He will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. That is precisely what's happening in chapter 3. He's turning them back to the Lord. The great goal of the work of God that he's given to John is to call God's people to what? To repentance. To repentance. To call God's people back to himself. The angel had said to his parents before he was born, and it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for God, for the Lord. That's an amazing point, isn't it? How would the people be made ready? How would the people be made ready for Jesus? By the turning of their hearts, by the changing of an attitude of disobedience to an attitude of obedience, to an attitude of righteousness, In a nutshell, they would be prepared for the coming of the Messiah through repentance, which we all hate, right? Our pride does not allow us to repent so many times. Our repentance is few and far between. Pride hates that. But look at God's work here. He sent a forerunner before Jesus to be a prophet of repentance. He immediately preceded the public ministry of his son with the public ministry of John, who was to lead the people to repentance, even as it says in verse 3, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's give him not just words, but let's give him a sign for repentance. A message of repentance is what God wanted preached, and, and at, at, you know, at the last minute before his son comes, that's what God has ordained, repentance being called to. He would speak to us, in his son, and that prelude before it is John calling for repentance. 
And one of the problems we have in this is we, we make neat little categories in our minds. John, repentance, Jesus, gospel. Right? John, repentance, Jesus, grace. John, law, Jesus, grace. Right? John, mean, Jesus, nice. All these distinctions. John, John is just those ordinary black letters in your Bible, but Jesus, he gets the red ones. They're special. They're hard to read. John, Old Testament, Jesus, New Testament. John, derogatory, Jesus, complimentary. John, graceless, Jesus, graceful. John, repentance, Jesus, faith. Right? We, we have a tendency to break it down this way. Or John, Old Testament, Jesus, New Testament. That, that wonderful separation between the God who is angry and the God who is gracious. Largely, these categories are fixed in our heads because we have a negative view of repentance. Negative view of the law, a negative view of, of the Old Testament and the sacrifices. We have a negative view of the shadows that pointed toward the substance. We think it nasty, depressing, hopeless. But anyone who has really experienced repentance, have you experienced repentance? Anybody who has experienced repentance, that deep sadness and, and hatred of sins, knows that it is anything but nasty. It's glorious. It's glorious. It's about the greatest thing one can experience on this side of of glory. When you finally beat through your pride and you say, yeah, I've sinned. And that weight of confession, that weight comes off your shoulders. And it's only by the grace of God that you were able to do it. Right? It's a wonderful thing. Because when we repent of our sins, we are just beginning to view them as God views them. We are just beginning to turn away from sin and to be actually amazed by God's grace. When we experience that gift from God called repentance, our sorrow is our deepest happiness. The Apostle Paul puts that experience this way, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God... So there is sadness that comes from God. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Without regret. No regrets in that repentance. Leading to salvation. 2 Corinthians 7.10 The most mature among us will be those who most appreciate those things that provoke us to repentance. Right? I mean, it could almost be said that it's not the holiest among us that will prove their maturity. It's those most willing to repent of their continued sins that will prove their maturity. But, of course, that's holiness. Right? Um, Those who most appreciate those things that provoke us to repentance, things like accountability from elders, um, sermons that, that hurt us, Sermons that cut us where we needed to be cut. Um, Scripture reading that just comes out of the pulpit and hits us between the eyes or we're sitting at home with a cup of coffee and we read it and we just begin to have a hard time breathing because we're so overcome by a sense of our sins. Or the woundful thing that a friend said to you. 
So ask yourself this, is repentance your enemy? I know people who, who have repentance as their enemy. They, they will not ever admit they're wrong. They will not ever admit that they've done something that grieves the Lord. They will not ever admit that they've, they've done something to hurt somebody else, even though four seconds before that, everybody in the room saw them do that despicable deed. Is repentance your enemy? Has your pride so bound you up that you are never willing to admit you're wrong, let alone pour out tears before God for the sins that you've committed that necessitated his son hanging from a tree, bleeding and dying? I mean, think of that. Your sins necessitated the son of God hanging from a tree as a curse. Have you ever been overcome by that and just amazed that God would do the work of forgiving your sins? Forgiving the sins that you have a hard time repenting about over. Or is your attitude toward repentance more like this? I've done my repenting. I'm done with that. I've done my repenting. I did that back when I first became a Christian. I, let me remind you of, of if that's your attitude. You know, I, I repented once. I said a prayer, and it was a prayer of repentance, and I'm done. Or, you know, I overcame that one sin that plagued me, and I'm done repenting. Now I can, I can cruise to glory. Um, the first of the 95 Thesis by Luther. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life, Right? And go read Psalm 51 or Romans 7 and 8 and let me know if you still think repentance should not be a continuing part of the life of Christians. The first two sentences from Thomas Watson's The Doctrine of Repentance. The two great graces essential to a saint in this life are, who knows them? The two great graces essential to the saint in this life are what? Well, you know one, faith and repentance, faith and repentance, faith and repentance. Think of your life in those two categories, faith or no faith or unfaith or unbelief and repentance or no repentance, pride set against God's fruitful work of repentance. Those, um, Watson goes on, he says, those are the two wings by which the believer flies to heaven. Faith and repentance preserve the spiritual life as heat and radical moisture do the natural. So now let's look at this, the, the preaching that John the Baptist gives. John the Baptist preaching um, of repentance. What's going on? We're given four examples of John's preaching in the passage. First, He preaches to the multitudes, verses 7 through 11. Yeah, verses 7 through 11. Second, he preaches to some tax collectors, verses 12 through 13. And tax collectors were notorious sinners, right? Third, he preaches to some Roman soldiers, verse 14. And then in verses 15 through 17, we we return to his preaching to the multitudes, to the crowds, the people. In the first instance, the crowds are flying out to the desert where John lived 
to be baptized with the baptism of repentance. And John gently says to them, Oh, you brood of vipers, sweet little vipers, you, you cool little vipers, you cute little snakes. No, no, he says with strength, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. I mean, these are intense words. Right there. I mean, you would think that a man who was proud, like John was proud, who had crowds coming out to him, would just want to flatter them like preachers do today. Right? Oh, you, 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 you good people. No. He's like, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, the prophets through the ages had been using the same same warnings to the Jews to flee God's wrath, and they'd done a good job. The people had done a good job of just ignoring all those prophets. Jesus brought this attitude to light later in his ministry when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. John is saying, why are you listening now? Then he gives the people a four-point sermon. One, show me your repentance. Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Two, don't think your Jewishness will save you. It means nothing. God could make Jews from stones. Three, you don't have much time. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. And four, bear good fruit or else. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, what is the goal of such a sermon? There's only one goal for a sermon like that, and it's repentance and acknowledgement that we have sinned. How do the crowds respond? They respond with a question. Then what shall we do? Then what shall we do? We're guilty. What shall we do? John answers with a very practical answer. He basically says, show me fruit. Show me your repentance. Not by coming out here and doing the cheap and easy thing. Give away your food and clothing to the poor. Whoops. That's works righteousness. Well, we'll see. Now, the second sermon, some tax collectors. Come to be baptized. The tax collectors were notorious. They were authorized by the Roman government to gather taxes, and and they were known for abusing that power and 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 taking more than was required and lining their pockets with the excess. Um, they want this baptism of repentance. What moved them to desire that? How does John respond to their question, Teacher? What shall we do? He tells them to stop lining their pockets, right? Only, only take, only gather what you have been ordered to gather. He is again saying, show me fruit. Show me your repentance with change of life. Now the third sermon, some Roman soldiers had some questions for John. What should we do, John? How does John respond to their question? He again tells them to show them Show him fruit, fruit of their repentance, not just by their words, but by not being thugs and also not being whiners. 
This is exactly what a soldier wants to hear, right? Don't be a thug and don't be a whiner. I mean, if you want to set off a soldier, tell him those two things. I've, I've been trained to fight, and I'm no whiner. But that's what he says. Stop complaining about your wages. Be content with your wages. All of these commands by John to the crowds, to the tax gatherers, to the soldiers are meant to provoke, provoke them to repentance. And yes, we have sinned against God by presuming upon our lineage to Abraham and disregarding his law. Oh, yes, we have, we have sinned against God by taking money that was not ours. Yes, we have sinned against God by being thugs and government tools, Right? That's what it was supposed to lead to, conviction. The preaching of the word by John was meant to bring conviction, repentance, not just lip service repentance, not just sacramental relief by baptism repentance, but fruit in keeping with repentance. John preached in order to prick their conscience. Some people's consciences are so seared that it will no longer ever be pricked in their life. They've pursued sin so much, they have no conscience left. They've been fully given over to their sins. John preached in order to prick the conscience of those who still had a conscience. He preached in order to make them examine themselves. He preached law that they might cry out in repentance. Now, how, how do these people respond? Verse 15 shows us. They are, in a sense, blown away. The passage says they were in a state of expectation, and they were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Messiah. I mean, they're like, what is going on here? This is extraordinary. They sense that something significant is happening. Now, that's progress, I guess. I mean, at least they have a sense that something greater than themselves is here. They're made to reflect. They're made to consider. They're made to think. I hope that... Um, this is, as Ryle says, a hopeful symptom. At the very least, they've been made to think. But that's not the goal. John, the preacher, answers their questions about whether he might be the Messiah. He says, I'm not the Christ. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. I got water. He's got the Holy Spirit. And fire. And you better be ready for his coming. Are you ready? Then repent. That's what John is saying. That's the summary of his, his message here. John has been hammering the people. He's been calling out particular sins. The Jews boast in their heritage and think they need no faith. The tax collectors are crooks, the soldiers too. And he tells them all to repent. Change, stop sinning. And you know what that is. That's nothing less than this. That is the preaching of the gospel. That's the preaching of the gospel. Now, you'll hear the gospel, that word trotted out in every church today. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And what most people mean by that today is the gospel is you'll be forgiven no matter how much you sin. That's what's taught. It's cheap grace. But God always calls to repentance. And that's part of the gospel. Pursuing holiness after God does the work of putting his spirit in you. 
This is the preaching of the gospel we see in John. This is not the preaching of the law, right? The nasty law. This is the preaching of the gospel. And he tells them to do things like stop stealing from people. Notice what it says in verse 18. So with many other exhortations also, he preached the gospel to the people. (laughs) Oh, man, if you tried to preach this sermon in the PCA and you were being examined for licensure, you would fail because it wouldn't be gospel-centered or Christ-centered. It's John the Baptist. It's the inspired words of the Holy Spirit telling people to stop sinning. I mean, it's mind-boggling. And then, and then the Holy Spirit has the audacity to call it the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. What? I mean, how in the world is what John did, calling out people's sins, warning them that the axe is laid at the root of the tree, telling them to stop stealing, telling them that those who don't repent are like chaff which Jesus will burn up with unquenchable fire. How in the world is that the gospel? The gospel, the good news, the announcement of good tidings. Now, dear brothers and sisters in the church today, is John's preaching what we call the gospel. Today we use the word gospel in opposition to this kind of preaching, in direct opposition. Today we use the word gospel more as something that calms the conscience than inflames the conscience, right? God, gospel is a synonym for cheap grace by which repentance is deemed unnecessary and even unhelpful. But the Holy Spirit calls John's preaching the gospel, the good news, the announcement of good tidings. So how is this good news? How is this preaching of the law, the gospel? The Holy Spirit gives us an explanation in Romans chapter 3. There we read this. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the gospel. Through The law comes the knowledge of sin. And again, in the book of Galatians, the Holy Spirit tells us, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Right? Through John's gospel preaching of the law, the end game was to bring a conviction of one's sins and then by the conviction of sins to goad somebody to flee to the only source of the forgiveness of sins in this world, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, dear brothers and sisters. There's no gospel without law. There is no gospel without defining the problem, which is sin. There's no gospel without each of us feeling the problem of sin in our bones and falling in repentance before his awesome holiness and pleading at that point the blood of Jesus Christ. Our repentance must be deep and thorough and it, and it, is, it must be wrought by the very Holy Spirit. We, and if it is by the Holy Spirit, we will indeed put to death the deeds of our flesh. Our repentance will extend even down to our desires, our desires that wage war against God. Now, one of the things that Stephen Warhurst, at the end of his 
at the end of his 10-minute speech in favor of that, that, those affirmations and denials, he said, he said this, and I was so thankful he said it. He said, much of, much of what modern homosexualists in the church are trying to do is to remove shame. But he said, the shame of this sin is God's grace. The shame of sin is God's grace to you. Feel the shame of your sin. There should be times when you think on your sin and you are weeping, crying out to God at, at just how, how nasty you've been. Not before others. Yeah, you've been nasty there and you may have to reconcile, but before God. God who is holy and perfect. right? You've been, you've been nasty to God. And cry out to him. And ask him to come in and renovate your heart, right? And by his grace and by his power, you will, you will know then the true grace of God built right upon your knowledge of your sins, your deepening knowledge of your sins, and the intensity of the law as it shouts against you. And so this is John the Baptist. This was that dear brother at the, at speaking into the wilderness of the PCA General Assembly, very encouraged by his work, um, very encouraged by the work of John the Baptist. We need John the Baptists today preaching the gospel. I think you would agree with that. Let's pray.